0: Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. I'm excited for the message this morning. If you're looking through your Bible, it will be in Luke chapter 3. We're going to continue on where we left last week so you can be turning to Luke chapter 3. This morning we're going to see Luke um, bring forth more of his testimony as he finds witnesses that are testifying of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, who has passed the test and gone on into glory that he might lead us through that we too can pass this test we call life. We saw uh The angel Gabriel announced the birth of Christ. We saw um, Zacharias. We saw John the Baptist testify to Jesus Christ, a witness. We saw last week in the baptism the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all give witness that this is Jesus the Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. Um, Today, we're going to see the Holy, or we're going to see, yeah, Satan give testimony. And the Holy Scriptures give testimony. With all that being said, let's go ahead and uh, pray for the the Word and, and jump on in. Father God, we thank You as we come before Your Word, recognizing that it's alive, that, Lord, it accomplishes that which You send it forth. We pray, Lord, that our hearts are prepared this morning to receive Your Word, that it would take root, that it would grow and bear fruit in our lives. I pray that You would speak to each one of us individually, as our circumstances in life warrant, but Lord, I pray that you would speak to us as a church, as a whole, that Lord, we would have one word, one message, that Jesus, you are King, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and you are the giver of life. Help us, Lord, now, uh, as we just approach you to do so in uh, reverence, in fear, in holy fire, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to pick up at verse 21 just really quickly. This is what we went through. The whole message last week was on two verses. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. This is uh, Jesus now beginning his public ministry. Read in verse 23. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. We're going to go on and do a little bit more of that. This is the age that typically uh, in their culture, uh, a young Levite would stop, step up to the plate and start serving at the tabernacle or serving at the temple, serving the Lord. And and Jesus, just as John the Baptist was set apart, he was called to the ministry to do that work of his father. And so now he's 30 years of age and he's stepping into that role. But notice that it's done in prayer, that he prayed. I love it that Luke continually brings out the prayers more than any of the other gospel writers. Luke always just gives us, and they prayed. And, and we see that it's through the power of prayer that God helps us go forward in this life. And, and, and he came forward not only in prayer, but in humility, that he submitted himself to John the Baptist. And in that submission, in that humility, and in that prayer, we see Jesus then anointed, the Christ. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. The Holy Spirit descended upon him and, and, and lit upon him. And he was anointed for that service of ministry as a man, as the Son of God. As God testified, behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Fully Son of God. And yet, he, not considering it robbery to be equal with God, not considering it something to boast or brag about that he was God, he shed, he emptied himself of all of his divine Prerogatives, and came to live as a human, that he might die as a human, that we might live as Christ lives. Amen. And so this is what's happening here. And uh, as Luke is recording it, we see all these pictures kind of developing. In um. Let's see. Okay, we'll go to verse twenty-three. Jesus himself began his ministry at about thirty years of age, being. And there's a little parenthesis often, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then we go down through a genealogy listing all the ancestors of Jesus all the way back to Adam, even God, his father. In verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so, Luke now gives us his pedigree, his lineage, uh, his record of who he is. It's interesting to compare Luke's genealogy to the one that Matthew gave us in the opening uh, verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew very concerned with Jesus Messiah reporting the king of the Jews who is to come to be the deliverer of the people and he wanted to make sure that he gave that royal pedigree and so Matthew gives the genealogy beginning at Abraham, who the Jews considered their father, and then right away to David, their king, of whom Jesus would rule on the throne of David, and coming on down to Joseph, um, Jesus' stepdad, if you will, the one that God tapped to help raise him, right, as God is his father. It's a different genealogy here in Luke, and remember, Luke is focused, he's a doctor, And he always brings about more physical aspects of Jesus, the person, the personhood of Jesus Christ, and he emphasizes his humanity. And so here we get a genealogy not based on royal pedigree, but just a bloodline that takes him all the way back to Adam and, in fact, God as his father. And so Luke is really emphasizing son of man, Son of God. This is the test that Jesus had to perform and, and pass in order to be our deliverer, in order to be our Savior. In Romans chapter 5, uh, we read in verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came to die, Okay. Verse 12 of Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, speaking of Adam, through whom the curse and sin and death came into the world, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all man, because all sinned, jumping forward into Romans 5.18, therefore... As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life, this one man being Jesus Christ, Messiah, and his righteous act. Remember when he went to John the Baptist to get baptized, and John says, you got this wrong. You should be baptizing me, not this way around. And Jesus says, permit it to be so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. We're going to do everything to a T. We're going to go according to the word of God. We're going to fulfill everything. And so that one man's obedience will be made righteous. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that where the offense may abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness, through eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. I like what uh, Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a chapter on the resurrection. In verse 45, we read, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he's that last Adam. Verse 46 of 1 Corinthians 15, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, that's us, we're made in the image of Adam from the dust, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly, that's us, who are children of God, uh, born of the Spirit into the image of Christ. Verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And so we see here this genealogy set forth as Luke is bringing forward his witnesses, right? Gabriel, Zacharias, John the Baptist, um, God the Father, God's Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all these various things. We're now getting this genealogy, this testimony that Jesus is that Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, that perfect spotless Lamb, that substitutionary atoning sacrifice that he as a human can stand in the place of human and take that human penalty that belonged to you and I so he became human that uh, he would pay our debt and experience our death but that then he would rise again and that we can rise with him also. This is so important, and Luke is kind of laying these things out, and the genealogy kind of brings this forward. I am not going to read all these names. Somebody say thank you. Okay. Because if I did, I wouldn't probably say I'm right, you know. But when you get to heaven, ask these guys, what's your name? I know you're not going to do it. Because when when you come to church, do you know everybody's name here? Oh, oh, hi, hi, uh, hi, brother. (laughs) Hi, uh, uh. Sister, Say, hi, sister. Right? It's like, I, I don't know. It'll be fun to see all these people when we get there. One of the things that I think is interesting, again, in Luke's genealogy compared to Matthew's, is that Matthew bringing forward the royal pedigree gives the descendants on down through King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, a prophecy was made. It's known as the Davidic covenant. Okay, it's a covenant, a contract, a promise God made with King David. We read in verse 12 of Second Samuel 7, speaking to David, God says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son and it goes on to say, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom you removed before you. He says in verse 16 of Second Samuel, 6, Samuel 7, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And you can follow that genealogy In Matthew's gospel, from Abraham to David to Solomon and on down through the Davidic line to Joseph. And yet, it deviates. Here in Luke, it switches it up. In the gospel of Matthew, it goes on down the line from David to Solomon, his son. You can look that up in uh, Matthew. But here, if you look over into verse 31... We see the son of Melia, the son of Minan, the son of Matana, or Matha, Matath, Matattha. That's why I don't like to read these. The son of Nathan, the son of David. And we get another son in this genealogy. The reason for that is for something that happened during the years when all these kings were ruling. You read about it in the book of Kings and Chronicles, and there was good kings and bad kings, but eventually God got fed up with all of these kings and their wickedness and their idolatry, and he judged them, and he brought on the Assyrians to take away Israel, the northern tribes. He brought on the Babylonians to take away Judah, the southern tribes, and the last king in Judah was a king by the name of Coniah, or we know him as Jeconiah, Jeremiah, who was a prophet at the time that Israel went into captivity in Babylon, wrote in the book of Jeremiah a prophecy about that last king. He writes in Jeremiah 22, verse 28, "'Is this man, Canaanite, despised and a broken idol? Write Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper.'" Sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. And so God curses the line of David, the descendants of David, the royal pedigree. It's cursed. And no longer will any son of uh, um, Jeconiah sit on the throne. And you think Satan's won. Okay? He, he thwarted God's plan because God said he would establish his kingdom forever. And if we can make God a liar, you can throw everything out. It's, It's meaningless if you can show that God isn't true. And yet, it's amazing how in this, through David, his other son, we see in this genealogy of Mary, the bloodline runs from Adam to Jesus uninterrupted. And so not only does Jesus have a royal pedigree established in Matthew's Genealogy, but here we see he has a pure bloodline running all the way back. It says to the son of Adam, the son of God. And nobody else can make that claim. Only Jesus and all of human history can say, This is who I am. This is where I came from. This is my mission. And I've got the proof and the evidence. So Luke is laying out this testimony of all these different things. And it, it's pretty cool. Just the, the thought of bloodline. I just want to throw it your way. It's a wonderful, wonderful song that Tim and the Glory Boys do. If you come out on Thursday night, I'm going to ask that they play that song. Okay, so Daryl, wherever you are, make sure they play that song. Uh, <laughs> last year, I think I asked, asked them to write, Heaven Has a Dirt Road. Okay, which is a great song about, yeah, there's streets of gold, but I hope there's a road somewhere up there with pine trees and mountains and a fishing hole, you know. And, uh, but uh, bloodline, it's so important. And here we see Jesus' uninterrupted bloodline, son of God, son of man, all the way back through Adam and God. And so this is kind of the evidence that's stacking up, okay. So now that he's been testified in fulfilling all righteousness... Chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus, so this is the beginning of his ministry, right? He's baptized, he comes out of the water, the heavens open, God just blesses him, the Holy Spirit falls on him, and what happens next? It says, then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's where he got baptized at, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. I'll just kind of read. Leave it right there. What's the first thing that happens to Jesus when he gets baptized? He, he gets tempted, right? He gets tested. He gets uh, pushed into the desert. This word led by the Holy Spirit um, could easily be uh, driven by the Holy Spirit or compelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's moving in Jesus, he's full of of the holy spirit he's full of faith gary at our men's breakfast yesterday was sharing about men of faith and he went through people like uh abraham and all these different guys many of which had faith but they also had failures but what does a man of faith look like it's a man who takes god at his word and steps forward in the spirit trusting god and gary asked a question which was a kind of heavy question He said to each of us yesterday morning, would you say that you are a man of faith? Church, would you say that you are a woman of faith? Are we people of faith? You know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him? Are you diligently seeking God? Are are you bearing in on that? Are you walking by faith? Are you filled with His Holy Spirit, and His Holy Spirit compels you and moves you? You know, here at the Springs, we have this uh, on our our signs out front and on the billboards, worshiping in spirit and truth. Okay? You can't disconnect the cart from the horse. We need the Word of God. We need the Spirit of God. And without both, we're not going anywhere. And we see people who kind of veer off into one bar pit or the other. Okay, They're either all into the Word and often get all legalistic and, and, and focused on the Word says, the Word says, the Word says. And yet, there's a Spirit. And the Spirit informs us, fills us, guides us, leaves us. He's active okay? And and we need both. We need to be people that are filled with the Holy Spirit and obedient to His Word. And here is Jesus being driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. The devil, Satan, okay? The enemy of our souls. And, And we look at this and we think, Um, wow, this is a big showdown, right? And Luke is, again, he's giving us a testimony of who Jesus is. He's testifying, and he's going to show us through these tests that Jesus prevails. Now, here in your Bible, or in my Bible, anyways, it says in verse 2, being tempted for 40 days. And you might say, well, pastor, my Bible says tempted, not tested, that Satan tempted him, right? And and. Just so that you know, the word is the the same whether you use the word tested or tempted. In the Greek, it's piradso. And piradzo simply has to do with the idea of putting to proof, okay? To endeavor or to assay. You may have heard of an assayer, uh, maybe like with a gold rush or something like that. You take ore that's full of precious uh, metals, but the first thing the assayer has to do with that ore to see how valuable it is, is to crush it pulverize it to powder but that's not enough then they've got to throw it in the crucible and they've got to turn up the heat and they've got to melt that that gold that ore until the gold or the silver whatever it is separates from from all the other stuff the dross and as as they turn up the heat and crush and pulverize it then they're able to get a good value of what it really is what its worth is That's what an assayer does, is tests it to find out how much value it has, how much truth it has, how much reality there is to it. And this is what tempting and testing is in our life. And uh, ultimately, they're the same thing. The question is, uh, who who likes testing? Who likes tempting? You better not answer that one, right? (laughs) And yet... Who of us doesn't understand how we all get tempted, right? I think it was John Wesley. He was uh, the founder of the Methodist Church in the late um, 1800s, or no, 1700s. Um, But he had this saying, he says, you know, temptation is like birds that fly through the sky, okay? And while you can't stop them from flying over your head, you really should make sure they don't build a nest in your hair. That's temptation. You, temptations come in your way. Jesus would say, in this world, you will have tribulation. You'll have trials. You'll have testing. You'll have temptation. You will have it. You can't stop it from coming. But be of good cheer. I won. I overcame the world, okay? I passed the test. And these tests come upon us all the time. In the gospel, or not the gospel, in James' letter to us. In James chapter 1 verse 12, James writes to us, "Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, proved, when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. And so, this is this idea of of temptation. It comes into everybody's life. It, It certainly came to Jesus. We read it right here in the book of Hebrews we read in chapter 4 at verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, because, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. It goes on to say in chapter 5 verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so Luke records for us this story, which Jesus would have had to have told his Disciples, his apostles, for us to have the record of it, where Jesus is alone in the wilderness for 40 days. Okay, 40 in the scripture, if you look at numbers, often certain numbers repeat in patterns, and you see them used throughout 40 days of rain, um, and, you know, with a, with a flooding of the earth, and there's a lot of 40s, and 40 is generally a number that's associated with testing, with trials, with God doing a work, Um, proving assaying and bringing out that which is inside and so jesus is now led driven by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days by the devil it shouldn't surprise us that the devil still can do things to us even though we have confessed jesus is our lord you know we're sons of god and you want to say well don't touch me right and yet i'm in my um, daily devotions. I'm in the book of Job right now, right? Which opens up with God allowing Job, or Satan to go and attack Job in every, every which way that he can. And we see that kind of behind the curtain's peek at what's going on. And we realize Satan is only a created being. He's an angel. He's a fallen angel. He's powerful. God allows him to do certain things to bring about his work He allows Satan to crush. He allows Satan to turn up the heat. He allows Satan to do those things so that we can prove what's really in us, what kind of stuff we're made of. And this is what's happening with Jesus. He's allowing Satan to have this battle. You know, if it's me, and I'm in the wilderness with Satan, and I'm Jesus, I'm like, ha, this is the moment. I've got you alone. Zap! And all you see is like this little red tail and a pitchfork and smoke and ha changed history right and yet that's not the way this goes down even in this jesus submits allows humbles himself to go through this tempting so that he can become an example to us as to how we might fight our battles how are we going to fight our battles team on our knees, with our hands lifted up, in prayer, knowing that God has a plan for us. He's began a good work. God's going to complete the work. All we have to do is just stay in the fight and don't quit. And he'll He'll bring it all to pass. And so here he is, 40 days and 40 nights. It says, in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Now, kind of interesting, right? How, you, a lot of you may have fasted for um, different times for different reasons and different purposes. A 40-day fast is, a, is an incredible fast. I don't know that I've ever met anybody personally who has done it. I've read of people that have done it and those kinds of things. That's wonderful in so many ways. Fasting is a way that we can disconnect from ourselves and from the world and from the distractions and fasting and prayer are joined together in the scriptures. Prayer is a way that we connect to eternity, to God, to uh, connect to God. And fasting is disconnecting from the self, the flesh, uh, and, and all those things. So here's Jesus, and he's, he's out in the wilderness, and he's fasting 40 days. It says, and then afterward, he got hungry. Th- now, that's amazing because I can fast, and I'm hungry by afternoon, Right? And here he is 40 days, but it's kind of scientifically amazing. If you can get into the first two or three, four days of your fast, all of a sudden your hunger disappears. It didn't say that he didn't drink. He probably had water, right? But the hunger disappears. But scientifically, clinically, they've noticed that when people start getting towards day 40, you start getting really hungry again. And what that indicates is you're about to die. When, you, when you've been through a fast and you've gone that long and all of a sudden you're like, ah, I'm fine. I've actually fasted for multiple days. And, and you can get into that zone where, yeah, I'm not hungry. I don't, no problem at all. And you're like, wow, this is weird, right? But there comes a time when the hunger comes back. And when it comes back, you, you, something's going to have to change pretty quick, okay? And here's Jesus and he's hungry, and the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. <laughs> That's quite the temptation when you're hungry, right? And, and it's amazing, again, that Jesus just didn't, he could have as God, but remember, he, he laid aside all of his divine prerogative. He chose not to use his his uh, godly attributes. He just had to live this and walk this as a man. And so he didn't just like bam, turn the wilderness into a bakery, right? Or Certainly he could. What, what do you think the chances are he could multiply loaves and fishes and feed 5,000 people? Not a problem for him, right? In the power of the Holy Spirit, even as a human, miraculous things can happen. Doesn't mean that I do the miracle, God does the miracle, but God can do miraculous things if you'll just stand back and let Him. And, and here He is, And Satan tempts them with food. This is the first of three tests that we're going to see that come to Jesus. They're classic tests. It's the devil's playbook, okay? He tempts us in these areas over and over and over and over and over. And you know why he picks these three plays? Because they work. They work on all of us all the time. It doesn't matter if you've been walking with the Lord 50 years. He still uses the same place, and he still moves the ball, and he still scores points on you because these, these work. In 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John writes in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and he, now he describes these three things, these worldly things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now Satan, he's a created being. He's of the world. And the only place he can run are plays of the world, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. In fact, that's how we see Satan open up. In his attack on humanity, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, as he comes to Eve and tempts Eve, tests Eve in the garden, he comes before her and and tells her, you can eat of that tree in the middle of the garden that God told you not to eat of. And and it says in verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, "Mm, I'm hungry, That it was pleasant to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, wow, shiny lure, right? It's like, wow, that's so cool looking. And desirable to make one wise, that's the pride of life, yep, it's all me, I got this. Those three she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Satan keeps running the same plays, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. First play he runs against Jesus, lust of the flesh turn these rocks into bread, right, and just eat, and you'll be fine, right? Nope. Same, same place He runs on you and I, on the flesh, right? He's always attacking us in our physical desires, our cravings, and, and those kinds of things. Um, but how does Jesus battle? How does Jesus fight His battle? Jesus answered him, saying, it is written. He quotes Scripture, he quotes the word of God, the word of God which God says He uh, elevates even above His own name. God would put His word on top of even um, knowing Him as Yahweh God. Jesus God he says, "Look to My word," and this is the tool that Jesus uses. You know what the good news in that is? I got one. <laughs> I've got his word, I've got this tool, I can fight with scripture. But one of the things you have to do is you have to know your word, you have to read your word, you have to study your word, and, and then you can be able to share his word. How many of you guys have ever been in a situation where you're witnessing to somebody or you're in some kind of place and all of a sudden a verse just comes into your head, right? You weren't like, hmm, what verse would go good right now? You weren't doing that, all of a sudden God just impresses upon you because you've stored up that word in your heart, and it's there when you need it. And here's Jesus, obviously, he knows the word, he wrote it, right? But he says, he quotes out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And so what he's saying here is there's more to life than bread. There's more to life than just Feeding the flesh, satisfying our desires, right? Our our primal lusts. Okay, there's more to life than that, Satan. And you can't just tempt me with that. One of the things I always like to do when I get a quote out of the Old Testament is look at or look it up in the Old Testament and find it in context. It's kind of fun with this one. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter eight, I'm going to bre- read f- beginning at verse one and see how this really fits nicely into what Jesus is telling. Satan, Deuteronomy 8, 1. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God has led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know. Does any of this sound like what we're reading this morning? It's just right out of the Old Testament, everything Jesus is talking about, everything he's experiencing, God has told him. And it says, so that you may know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why we call this the bread of life. This This is what we need to be eating. We need to nourish our spirit. We need to nourish our souls. Just like we tend to eat two, three times a day, maybe snacking in between, how much do we feed our spirit? How much do we feed our soul? Do we get up and have breakfast with the Word? Do we pause in the middle of the day and catch lunch with the Word? Do we finish our day with the word of God? Are we feeding our spirit? Well, Jesus tells Satan, he rebukes him by saying what the spirit said to him, okay? That's the first one, the lust of the flesh. Verse 5, then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, For this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Wow. What a promise, right? Hey, I got a bridge I'd like to sell you, you know? Really, can you do that? Who are you to claim that you can actually give me all these worlds? Amazing, as we look into uh, this in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, as the church and all the saints and everybody's gathered in the throne room of heaven, we read in chapter 5 of Revelation 1, and I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And many, many have speculated that this is the title deed to earth itself, these scrolls. You look into the book of Jeremiah in chapter 32, and it goes into detail about a a field and a purchase of a field and how those scrolls are to be sealed up. And and here we see a picture of that, Satan claiming, I own the deed to earth. When would Satan have gotten the deed to earth? Anybody? Any guesses? Any guesses? Right back there in Genesis 3 at the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned and sin and death entered the world. And all of a sudden, as they, instead of listening to, hearkening to the Word of God, obeying, worshiping God, they shifted their allegiance to Satan. Satan took ownership. And here in the book of Revelation, we see this scroll in verse 3 of Revelation 5, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it, so I wept much. This is the Apostle John. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, behold! "'The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, "'has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. "'And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne "'and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders "'stood a lamb as though it had been slain, uh, "'having seven horns and seven eyes, "'which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand "'of him who sat on the throne,' And now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, a gold bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And yet, that's the book of Revelation. Hasn't happened yet. It's still in our future. This particular episode, Jesus in the wilderness, Satan says, I'm going to give you all this. All you need to do is bow down and worship me. Okay, it says the devil taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory for this has been delivered to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Yeah, if you just, if you follow me, you can have your own planet. It's all yours. Just, just do things the way I say. And yet, what does God say? What does Jesus say? He says in verse 8, And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, he quotes the Scripture. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. In Deuteronomy 6 and in Deuteronomy 10, we get these quotes. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, we read, and this is speaking to God, He is your praise, He is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord God has, uh, I'm sorry, I should have read verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, he is your God, and he has done for you these great and awesome things which you have seen. Satan is trying to usurp the authority, the power of God. He's always wanted to be God. And if he can get Jesus to worship him, to bow down to him, then he can, he can make this happen. It says in verse 7, If you will worship before me. That word worship is proskuneo. And the reason I bring that up, kaneo in the Greek is, is a word for a little dog. And what it really connotates is a dog that would come and lick your toes. And that's what worship What Satan is asking, if you will just bow down to me, if you will kiss my feet, I'll give you all this, but you must worship me. And yet, we recognize that only one is worthy of worship. This is God Almighty, and Him alone shall you worship, Him alone shall you fear, and Him you shall serve. And uh, this is something that Satan seems to leave out. You do know that who you serve is who you worship. Who you worship is who you serve. Let me ask you, who are you serving? Are you serving yourself? Are you serving your creditors? Are you serving? Think of who you're serving and and, and kind of work on that hierarchy of who gets the glory and who gets the preeminence in your life. Why do you do the things you do? Who are you doing them to? Who do you bow down to? Who do you serve? That will tell you who you worship. This is Jesus' answer from the Scripture again. Verse 9, Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. I might notice that three times Satan keeps saying if you are the Son of God. In the Greek, there's three different ways of interpreting the word if. It might mean if, but you really aren't, or it might mean if and nobody knows, or if it means if, and it really is true. This is an if, and it really is true. We often use the word since to express that. Since you are the Son of God, because Satan knows who he's dealing with. He knows he's Jesus, right? Even the demons know who he is, and they tremble. So it's not a matter of if this might or might not happen or it couldn't happen. Satan is saying, you could do this because you are the Son of God. So he's really testing or tempting to see if he really is living as not only the Son of uh, God, Son of Man, but Son of God. So if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. This uh, pinnacle in Jerusalem, Josephus, the historian writes that it was the southwest corner of the temple, which would have been about 400 feet above the Kidron Valley at the time of Jesus, and so here he is standing on this pinnacle and saying, if you will worship me, um, well, I should keep going, for it is written, throw yourself down, and and then this is a fun one, and then what does Satan do? Quote scripture, right? right. Don't think that just because so, somebody's quoting Scripture means that they're necessarily on your team, okay? We see it in politics all the time. How many people instantly become born again until the election's over, and then they just live like heathens. And, and you're like, what was that all about, right? They're, they're doing what Satan does. They're, they're running his playbook. And so we get this quote out of Psalm 91, verses 11, 12. It says, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, verse 11, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. So what he's basically tempting him, testing him here, is in the pride of life. Since you are the Son of God, jump off the temple. He'll send the angels. You won't even bruise your toe. It's not going to hurt you in the least. Just go for it, right? And, And... and what does Jesus answer? Uh, Jesus answered and said, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, okay? And in this case, that idea of tempt is more like, we think, more than test. It's trying to somehow get God to fall short, to, to prove that God isn't true. And so, Uh, Satan quotes this. I think it's interesting out of Psalm 91. Again, you go to the Old Testament, look up these verses, and in Psalm 91, we just quoted verses 10 and 11, uh, um, 11 and 12, but if you go back up to Psalm 91 verse 9, it says, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. What did Satan leave out of his quote of the Old Testament. You're going to have to make the Lord the Most High your dwelling place, okay? Not Satan, not the devil. You're going to have to pick to choose. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to live with? Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor plague come near you or your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone and so again satan has all these tactics but it's the lust of the flesh man i'm hungry turn it to turn the stones to bread or pride of life look at all those kingdoms all those empires they're all yours or pride of life wow I, I'm really something, I, I, I'm going to live forever, I'm an eternal being, I don't have to worry about all these things. They're all the same sins that we find ourselves falling into, caving into, and yet in each one of these, how does Jesus show us the way? It is written, it is written, it is written. What do we see in Jesus here? We see somebody who prays, somebody who's humble somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit, somebody who's walking by faith, somebody who knows his word, and somebody who, as a man, defeats Satan simply by quoting his word and walking out, living in spirit and in truth. It's it's a beautiful picture for us. And it says in verse 13, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time worship team come on up until an opportune time did you catch that that means he's coming again he's not going to quit right and you have to know and i have to know that All the days that we live in this planet, even though you're a child of God, even though you've confessed Jesus as Lord, you know He's risen from the dead, and as your Lord and Savior, you're going to go to be to heaven with Him, even in spite of the fact that you've been sealed by His Holy Spirit and filled, and you know His Word, and you're walking according to His grace and to His will, the enemy is going to continually bring attacks. Right? It's going to come on you. It's going to come on the church. It's going to come on our community, our nation. Satan's not going to give up. Jesus would say, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's a given, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities and powers and the rulers of wickedness of this dark age, against heavenly uh, against dark powers in the heavenly places right and we have to understand where the battle lies but our weapons that we fight with they're powerful for pulling down all these arguments that exalt themselves against god okay and as we walk forward as christians living beautifully in a dark world the world will look on us and go what do you got that i don't have why do you have hope why are you happy don't you read the news? Don't you know what's going on in the world? Everything is just falling apart. And you have say, oh, no. I've read the Word. I have the Spirit. Everything is falling together, just like God said it would. And we are closer every day to heaven. Amen? That should be encouraging to us. Father God, I pray that as we go through this week, that you would give us just your anointing to be witnesses to you, to live beautifully, to be filled with joy and peace and hope, kindness and gentleness, patience and long-suffering, godliness. Help us, Lord, to be a reflection of who you are in these dark ages, that more people would come to know what we know, that you live, and because you live, we live. Help us, Lord, to live a beautiful life in this community. I pray, Lord, over this week, I pray, Lord, over the uh, concert coming up in the town square, I pray that you'd fill that place. And I pray, Lord, for the ladies' retreat this weekend, that you would just really do a work in those hearts, Lord, and uh, just give them your special touch. Lord Jesus, until we come together again, we ask that you would just uh, be our guide in Jesus' name. Amen thanks for joining us today to learn more about the springs calvary chapel please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org join us in person at the springs in hayburn idaho or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth